Hi, this is Bob Rosakis. You're listening to the Batman Family Reunion on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Welcome to the Batman Family Reunion, proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am Sean M. Myers. The M stands for Man Bat. One of your hosts, and with me as always, is my co-host and bat cousin, Paul Keen. How are you this month, Paul? I'm fine, Sean, but I have been trying to get our bat nephew triplets, Lauren, Joseph, and Bert, to stop doing their gymnastics competition. They are getting way too old for this, and Bert always wins. How are you? I am great. I'm just hanging out with some cool grandparents, Madge and Victor, and listening to the stories about their wedding day. I'm also very excited today because we have another guest at the reunion this month. Hold on to your Twinkies because our good friend and bat cousin made the trip to the Wayne family gardens from across the Atlantic. A warm bat welcome to Martin Gray. Glory Glory to to Gray. Gray. (laughs) Welcome to the reunion, Martin. I hope you brought us some of your local cuisine or maybe not. No, no, Cousin Paul, Cousin Sean, thank you for having me. I have indeed brought something. As I'm over from Bonnie, Scotland, I've brought McTwinkies. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, no, I am kidding. I've come with a national dish, haggis, but not any old haggis. Here we have a spicy jumbo haggis, which you buy in the local chip shops. And it's a sausage-shaped haggis fried in butter with a sweet chilli tang. I reckon that Babs, being a spicy chick, would prefer this to Dick's Wiener any day. <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to have a good time on this show, Sean. This is going to be a great episode. <laughs> what do you want to tell the folks at home about the show? Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978, and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing on as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints, before morphing, in this issue, to all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man Bat, and even Ragman and the Red Tornado. Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman family reunion. Martin, before we get started on the issue, please tell us your relationship to the Batman family. How did you get into the book and who is your favorite family member? Well, a secret origins go. What happened was I was poodling around in the grounds of Stately Grey Manor one day. I tipped over the cat, fell down a hole. At the bottom of the hole was a newspaper shop and there was Batman family number two. I was a big old fan of Robin and Batgirl already, you know, had been buying the comics for a couple of years. And I was fascinated to see Batgirl and Robin get top billing for once rather than just be and Robin, and Batgirl. Although, of course, if you're in the movies these days or in TV, the and billing does have special prestige. And I continued reading the book until it became a dollar comic, at which point it pretty much stopped getting general UK distribution. So being being able to hear the show, hear what I missed, and now via the DC app and reading things online and buying back issues, I'm able to catch up, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that that why would there be less worse distribution rather in for the dollar comics just because of the price point, do you think, or the weight? I know that they used to send comic books over on ships as ballast, right? They literally did, yeah. They just adjusted the weight of the ships by throwing in comic books. I don't know. I have no idea. But for some whether they came from a different printer, perhaps. It was very spotty distribution. So again, just being able to hear you tell me about what was going on in Batman Family, fantastic. Now, Martin, not growing up in America, did you have 
media? Because definitely, not did you have media? <laughs> Obviously you did. <laughs> I, That's the I question, to... like, did you have refrigeration, Martin? Yeah, yeah. Did you have the media representation? Because when I was a kid, Super Friends and the Batman live action, although, like, at my point, it was in syndication. Did you have those to introduce you to the characters, or how did you first learn about the characters? Well, we had we had the Batman TV series, which was probably on a second one by the time I saw it. Super Friends never made it. We did get the Scooby-Doo cartoon that had Batman and Robin guest appearing. And Batman oh, yeah. That was fun. But, you know, I mean, I, I knew the comics well before. Like, I started reading the comics when I was about... Ooh, about eight year old because back in back in the good old days before we had you know sort of rules as an eight year old I was allowed to babysit the kids over the road the little, the little toddlers over the road for my mum's friend Lynette I'd go over it's about yeah about nineteen seventy two and for looking after the kids for a couple of hours while she was you know at the ladies' coffee evening or whatever I would just down the street it wasn't too dangerous I would get fifty pence huge amount of sweeties candy and a pile of every time about a hundred comics from the early 1960s all DC comics that her brother Ancient Issues of Action Comics World's Finest Super Batman etc Legion Adventure rather and it was just every week for, for a couple of years I would get more and more comics and then I'd start buying the comics new off the newsstands and catch up with where they were then so it was it was interesting suddenly to see Dick in college and Bab's political career that's really neat you've written before about having a couple of questions answered in in the answer man do you want to tell that story because i want you to tell the story <laughs> yeah no bother at all. i mean if anyone's heard this before i do apologize but yes i mean then writing the dc comics it was something that you had to really think about because of course we had stamps in those days and overseas postage and we were already about three months behind the u.s in terms of when we read the comics if you sent a letter in you probably had to wait about a year before giving up the ghost and thinking it's not going to be printed but wow but I did have some things I wanted answered in the Answer Man. So I wrote about artist Rich Buckler, who used to do a lot of covers for DC back in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. I noticed on, I don't know why, I was looking too closely as ever, but I noticed there was a cover of Black Lightning where there was this guy in a Steve Austin leisure suit with long blonde hair in the crowd at a circus, I think probably number 11 or something, reacting. And then he also popped up on an issue of Action Comics. And I just wrote it to DC and said, Uncle Bob, is this artist Rich Buckler and he confirmed that it was which was kind of thought oh good I also wrote because I'm a pernickety reader I used to read all the details in, in the Indicia publishing details on page one of the actual comic story and I, I noticed always said all stories in comics any relation to real people is coincidental they're not real kids don't sue us that sort of thing Right. but the subtitle of the ghost horror comic was true tales of the weird and supernatural and I thought well how can they be true because it says they're not <laughs> and you know rather just let well, because it's just fiction and fun. I was just anal retentive, wrote to Bob and asked about it. And he said, ah, yes, of course, bang to rights, etc." And then, again, it might have been a coincidence, but about a month or so later, with an issue, must have been in the mid-50s or something, the subtitle changed to New Tales of the Winds. <laughs> and I took that as a win. I had the ego, <laughs> that was the win. Bob could perhaps chime in and say, nah, forget it, kid. We were doing it anyway, but... It happened. That is the story of how Martin affected the change at DC Comics. Okay, we are now going to talk about the amazing Batman Family Giant number 11. The cover date is May, June 1977. The release date was February of 1977. And the page count is 48 pages. Cover price is 50 cents. And there are three all new stories. And this, of course, is the first issue where every story is brand new. 
The cover artist is Jim Aparo, and it's the first Jim Aparo cover for Batman Family. What do you guys think of the cover? Martin, do you want to start us off? Well, guys, sludge. The impression this cover leaves is of sludge. I mean, what <gasps> is... What? Oh, no, 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 no. I'll be saying nice things, honestly. Sludge means something different in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's got a grudge because they turned him to sludge. No, but what is... <laughs> Horrible green grey background. I could see it, oh, yeah. see it with a Swamp Thing logo, but this is Batman family. I mean, happily, there is that splendidly intriguing Jim Aparo scene. To distract the eye from the sludge. We have the Teen Wonder and the Domino Dead all being railroaded into marriage by gun-toting thugs. I mean, just look at the outfits. Dick Grayson in an exceedingly ugly Robin-coloured suit. Powderbrew tuxedos that North American gents get married in. And there we have Barbara Gordon looking like a ghost. Now, the promise of a Commissioner Gordon slash Alfred team-up you could call it world's oldest. <laughs> Martin's bringing the heat. We're getting all new material for just 50 cents in my land, about 15p, something like that. So who could resist? Did you boys resist? Well, I did not resist. I had this one. I'm a huge Jim Aparo fan. I just love the facial expressions and all the, the goons are like, and Batgirl and Robin are like surprised. <laughs> I think that's just funny. And the outfit's. That's what people remember about this cover, right? Is the outfits are hysterical. I like how the cowl of Babs, it turns into her cape. I think that's kind of interesting design choice. Not very practical for crime fighting, but for a wedding. I can't begin to tell you how much I love this cover. This is one of my all-time favorite covers ever. Not just a Batman family, but like ever. I'm even willing to forgive the box down in the bottom. I guess Man Bat could have been the best man at the <laughs> wedding, and maybe Commissioner Gordon and Alfred could have been stand. What I'm about to say is not trash-talking or anything like that at all. Jim Aparo, I like him. I know there are some people in the network who it's his favorite artist, and that's fantastic. Find your joy. I like him. I never have anything necessarily negative to say about Jim Aparo. I think he did a fantastic job on this cover. What you guys were saying about the costumes, I have to tell you right now. So I probably have, I don't know, like a hundred action figures. I can't imagine in my life I'm ever going to buy another action figure. Like I have Dead Man, I have the Golden Age Flash, I have Phantom Strength. Like I love all the outfits and stuff that I love. I have those. I can tell you right now, if, is it the Heroes Figures Company that does the new Mego? If they came out with this tomorrow, I would buy it because I want these as like eight inch Mego action figures. I would love to see this as cosplay. I could spend the rest of the episode talking how much I love. And then we're jumping ahead a little. The same outfits are on the next page. Robin still has his green booties. Yeah, I, I love, love the green that. booties. That's a riot. Jim Aparo did uh, Todd McFarlane and covered up the feet. I'm with you. I have one action figure, Booster Gold, and I would buy these in an instant. It's not sacrilege. I also wasn't the biggest Jim Aparo fan. I was generally quite disappointed, don't shoot me, Rob, if I came across a comic and his art was in there. Again, he was good. And I, I see the bit of, bit of Alex talking that you could do a lot with very few lines. Mm -hmm. But this particular cover, he's gone big on the detail. You've got stippling on, on the borders behind which we have all the thugs. You have the wonderful sort of the shop lines behind their heads. You can see the movement of the gun coming out of the Bible. I mean, this is 10 out of 10. This is just absolutely fantastic. And one thing I definitely will give Aparo praise about, Mambat's face on the cover looks very good. 
I'll have more to say about that. But yeah, Jim Lepar's man bat face is, is very good. It's the best man bat in the comic. Ooh, not a Marshall Rogers fan. I've said it before, and I think I'll say it three more times before the episode ends. Martin, I love you and I hate you. <laughs> what are you going to do? Beat me to death with a Twinkie? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they are stale enough that you probably could do some damage. I was in Boston a couple of weeks ago, came across these stands full of Twinkies and other things from the same company. I managed to resist. <laughs> <laughs> we will post the image of this cover, as well as some additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website. Paul, remind our listeners where that is. That's at firewaterpodcast.com. So let's jump into that first story. So as we've been talking about, the first story is a team up of Batgirl and Robin entitled Till Death Do Us Part. It's 18 pages written by Bob Rosakis with art by Kurt Swan and Vince Coletta and reprinted in the two Batgirl and Robin Bronze Age on the buy. You are cordially invited to the wedding of Batgirl and Robin. So in part one, which stars Robin, at Hudson University's Round Robin basketball tournament, the teen wonder is about to toss the ball up for tip-off when a shot rings out and drops him to the court. But fortunately, the basketball stopped the bullet and Robin dunks the sniper easily. We find out that he was a hitman from Maze. Remember them from the Princess and the Vagabond story in number five? Anyway, the next morning, a balding man stops at a gas station restroom to yell at himself in the mirror. Well, he really is secretly communicating with the head man of Maze and expressing his disappointment with the Maze hit squad he hired. And they better do a better job eliminating Batgirl. So in part two, in Washington, our favorite Congresswoman Babs Gordon is staking out a parking garage at 2 a.m. since she's been tracking an information leak in her congressional committee. And a clue was anonymously phoned into police headquarters for Batgirl. Not suspicious at all. But she follows the car out and doubles back to chase her. Some evil Knievel bike riding later, she flips onto the roof of the car and takes out the thugs. The police come to take them away, and soon our bald man is yelling at the gas station mirror yet again. The leader of Maze says he will personally supervise now and take out both Robin and Batgirl. And in part three, the murderous matrimony. Sometime later, we are in an auditorium full of scum and villainy. They are all there, having been invited to the wedding of Batgirl and Robin, immediately after which they will be executed. With the head of Maze presiding, and apparently drugged or hypnotized Robin and Batgirl, take their vows. As he utters the words, till death do you part, the crooks blast the couple. But when the smoke clears, the dynamite duo are nowhere to be found. All of a sudden, they swing down from the rafters above. While cracking wedding puns, and with Robin even carrying Batgirl over the threshold, the pair proceeds to take out all the crooks. They basically have taken down all of Maze, including the head man. But huh? How did all this happen? And why? Well, back at Babs' Washington apartment, we get a third wall-breaking explanation from Babs and Dick. Turns out the whole thing was a sting operation from the beginning. They knew that Mays was back in business and wanted to flush them out. It was Dick who was disguised as the bald guy who hired Mays, using funding from you-know-who. And since they needed to get the head man, they concocted this elaborate plot. As usual, we end with some flirting. Bab compliments Dick on how he looks as an older man, and he says, well, maybe I'll keep this disguise on for a while. So let's start with you, Martin. Well, all in all, I would say the story does not live up to the cover or even the splash page. We don't get the fantastic wedding outfits. Mm -hmm. There's a confusing narrative that needs an awkward, contrived final page to explain it after the fact. I was just disappointed. I mean, whenever there's no super villain, I'm 
likely to be disappointed, although we're going to get a man back later, which has a super villain. But overall, I didn't think this was the best Robin and Batgirl team up. Sean, how about you? What are your first thoughts? I agree with everything Martin said about how it is disappointing. It's kind of contrived. So those points, actually, I agree with you. But I do like this story a lot. And I reread Batman Family even before I was going to do this podcast. And when I got to this story, halfway through, I was kind of like, especially like the wedding kind of like quote unquote the wedding doesn't make sense which is true but in my head canon i've made it that robin in his old man disguise made all of this stuff happen so even though like to us it doesn't make sense and probably the, the people in maze they're like why do we have to sit here why don't we just kill me oh well this guy is paying for everything so we have to do it his <laughs> way <laughs> so, so that that excuses if a we lot we want to get the that. appetizers later <laughs> and, and the, the haggis and twinkies fabulous and very much i have come to realize bob rosakis really loves to like give you the stuff at the end to explain all the fun like he's kind of like paying the dinner you had a fantastic meal you've enjoyed it the dessert was sensational but you have to pay the bill so bob rosakis is paying the bill <laughs> I'm also going to forgive it because in a way, it kind of sort of reminds me of the last five minutes of the Avengers, Steed and Peel Avengers. The last part of the show didn't really have anything to do with the story. They would, whatever, be out at a cafe or out hunting or doing something like that. And it was just funny, like cute, flirty banter. And that kind of is this page. I don't know that I want to say I'm forgiving a lot. Maybe I'm accepting. I'm finding my joy in the story. Lovely manual, but I would say it's not like the Avengers with Steve and Mrs. Peel in that those quarters could be tacked on to any, any episode. You could remove them, whereas this was absolutely essential to explain the ridiculous disconnect between yeah. chapters. Same. When I was reading it, I thought I have missed a few pages out. I had a couple other thoughts. There were even more puns than usual mm-hmm. in this story. And with one exception that I'll get to later, I enjoyed the art. I thought the art was pretty good. I was obviously disappointed we don't get those great outfits in the story. Yeah. And the elephant in the room, I don't think that Bob necessarily played fair with us on the sting operation because we see the thoughts especially that Batgirl has. She seemed really surprised about the operation in the parking garage. We didn't need all that. If we didn't see her thoughts, if we didn't see Dick's thoughts, the sting felt a little artificial, I guess. It makes sense that it was all contrived. And I like your headcanon. Dick's like, maybe she says, oh, this guy's not so bad. He contrived this whole wedding scenario. I like that. That's a brilliant point. I wonder if the reason that there are more puns than usual to justify Bob putting in that line about Robin explaining to the people there why he makes so many puns, not because he's just a cheeky chappy which he is but it helps him cope with the constant threats to his life yeah that's a good point how about the first section with robin i know what you're going to say about his thighs sean (laughs) i did notice his thighs to launch that guy 10 feet in the air to land him in the basket i mean that's some powerful thigh action there we were talking about headcanon that's not headcanon that has been documented throughout this entire run of (laughs) his powerful thighs as a kid I definitely would not have noticed it. But talking about Vince Coletta now, I'm not going to pile on him. But on pages three and four. Yeah, there's like no backgrounds at all. Yeah, they're in a stadium and there are no backgrounds whatsoever for these pages. That's a disappointment. I think it's okay with the sniper. I almost wish Robin would have said that the basketball was reinforced. I think that would have been a better plot point for that for the first part of the story. Yeah. I mean, to Martin's point about the discussion about being brave and doing the puns, the whole thing about being brave, it reads a little weird when you think about it. Robin set it up from the first place. How did he know 
how the guy was going to try to assassinate him. There's more plot holes than usual in this story, unfortunately. You've got to be swept along, which I was until I got to the disconnect. But, but I mean, I mean, there are some great points. I mean, like from, from this, the start when Bob puts the extra effort into, into the credits when he's, you know, he's got Bob the recorder, Kurt and Vince, the artistic license, <laughs> Jerry yeah. Sir, Flowers, it. And just phrases like, you know, when when the marriage is being done, deadly beloved. The ex- the yeah. ex- Bob is not phoning it in. No, he's not phoning it in. Listen, it's tons of fun. I mean, we've said it before. Not all of it makes a ton of sense. We're not always here for the intricate plot details of <laughs> yeah. these stories. It's the opportunity to see the continued evolution of the relationship. And I think mm. that's the best part of all these stories. It is. And Editor Julius Schwartz was very into, you know, sort of have the gimmick, have something eye-catching to get in there. Right. Perhaps don't worry too much about the details as long as there's lots of things going on. He was famous for having somebody come up with a cover and then writing the story around it. So I could see them sitting around the office saying, we've been teasing these kids with a Robin Batgirl relationship. Why don't we pretend like they get married? Bob, go off and write a story where there's a fake wedding, something like that. Because the attraction was there between them, although I'm deeply, deeply disturbed by Barbara's attraction to dick in a rubber old man mask. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, we are absolutely not into kink shaming on the show. That is not what we are. We are totally accepting of everything legal, consensual. That's go for it. (laughs) I have to say from an art perspective, as we move into the Batgirl section, I like the three pages of Batgirl action on the motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And then she flips up and then flips over the car and knocks the thugs out. She's having fun too. And I like that sequence. I thought that was really well done. Oh, I love it. Technically, the wedding is supposed to be the most exciting. I thought this action sequence was great. It was Mm -hmm. a great showcase for Batgirl. She's riding the motorcycle and she flips over. She's riding on top of the car. Her stance when the car is coming towards her. I think Kurt Swan did fantastic job on this this action sequence. I love it. You really did. I mean, the fight choreography is just exemplary. Mm-hmm. It's been said before, but Kurt Swan doesn't get the credit he deserves for his, his storytelling. is wonderful. One thing, though, with regards to Barbara, she's chasing the thugs on her bike and thinking she hopes that they don't find out that she's behind. I mean, did she have a silent ride? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, Martin, I can tell you they're not because there are two humongous vrooms on the page. (laughs) (laughs) That's my point about the thoughts. Like the thoughts are incongruous with the sting operation. Absolutely were. And one thing with Dick being the brains and the money behind this operation, did he pay to have lexophones put into men's rooms all across America or something? (laughs) (laughs) So let's move into the wedding. I don't know if you noticed this. But the wedding is actually in Ford's Theater in Washington, which was a nice touch for a murder. I was wondering how they hired it out <laughs> and whether you can hire it out for weddings nowadays or not. Is that right. where Lincoln was assassinated? That's where Lincoln was yeah. assassinated. That's yeah. right. That's right. Wow. I don't think it looks like this. When you have Wayne money, you have opportunities afforded you that the regular person does not. So, yes, you can have a wedding in Ford's Theater. Again, was the wedding Dick's idea or was it May's leader guy's idea? We don't seem to get that. And how long does it take to gather all those people together and they all bring their guns? I don't know. It's just a riot. I don't know if you guys enjoyed all the cracks by the thugs as the wedding ceremony is getting started. The female thug was like, ah, what I'd give to plug that witch right now. <laughs> I more of that. That was wonderful. Really. The guys indulged. Excellent. I thought that dialogue was great. 
they start shooting. I like how the maze guy doesn't get out of the way. He just hides behind the podium and then peeks out. <laughs> I thought that was a riot. That is some strong podium. And then they come flying down and we get an, a pretty cool visual of them sinking into the floor yeah. as the bullets fly past them. And you got to have a lot of confidence that that's going to work to stand up there. A lot of wedding puns. I love slash hate on page 16, the visual where Babs jumps through the three panels and says, heads up, hubby, um, here comes your blushing bride and jumps into his arms. So I thought that sequence was great. The one part of the art that I wasn't great, I, I didn't like the way she looked in that last panel. First of all, Dick looks very young, too young to be married for sure. And then Barb, her face isn't quite right and her body seems elongated out. That last panel didn't do it for me. And I think earlier we talked about Kurt Swan drawing a younger looking Robin. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, to me, Robin looks pretty much the same age as Batgirl in that last panel. I think it's fantastic the way that you, you know, he's carrying Batgirl. Meanwhile, she's bashing one cook on the chin with one fist. And meanwhile, she's kicking two others with her bat boots. Fantastic. And the perspective looking down on them from above. I just think it's brilliant. That's my favorite of the story. Yeah, I agree with you, Martin. The action and the layout is great. I'm just not a fan of her face. She just looks a little off model to me on that. It's funny because I was going to bring up, there's a theater full of criminals and it's only Robin and Batgirl taking care of them. But in this one panel, Batgirl's laying out three people. So maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe that is good. Maybe that does work out. And so the exposition page, Babs looks quite fetching yeah. on that page and a little flirting. I mean, what more can we say about this? It's a lot of fun, a little goofy, doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's kind of our MO, isn't it, Sean? <laughs> it really, it really is, yeah. One other thing, it includes that phrase that confused me is when I was a nipper, round robin, because I came across a Batman story when I was at seven or eight in the old comics I was given called the Round Robin murder case, I think it was. And I thought it was something to do with Robin, not knowing that it was a phrase, Round uh, Robin. Uh, up again. You know, again, when I was reading this at the time, no idea what that phrase meant. Interesting. I didn't even catch that. That's a good point. Yeah, no, if you're not familiar with that phrase, that's going to really... Ah, the Round Robin death threat. That was what it was from an old detective comics. Anything else on this story before we move on, guys? I think we are ready for the reception. Well, that right, boys. Now we're going to move on to the Bat Timeline. In this segment, we're going to take a look at the other titles that DC published this month and what the rest of the Batman family was doing at that time. And this is all thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics with the newsstand feature for February 1977. And the Bat-related books this month are Batman number 287, and the story is called Batman X, as in extinct. And this is a great cover because it's Penguin riding a pterodon trying to <laughs> shoot batman so i pray that there is another jurassic park movie and it merges with dcu <laughs> and that this is now going to be happening in the movies in the brave and the bold number 134 this month we get batman and green lantern by bob haney and jim aparo with an aparo cover of batman being forced by someone to shoot Green Lantern with a gun and Green Lantern is afraid? What's up with that? The next one, oh, I love this. It's DC Superstars number 14 and it's Secret Origins of Supervillains. And I love all the DC Super Origins titles. It was great because they had a Secret Origins comic, but then Secret Origins with that fantastic logo, that jumped from Digest to Treasury mm -hmm. to Special. And in this issue... It's Green Lantern, G as in Guardians, Green Lantern, and Gorilla Grodd, Double Take, which is the Two-Face origin, and then Let There Be Dr. Light, which is Dr. Light. 
And it's a fantastic cover. Two faces front and center. So right there, you have me. You have Gorilla Grodd, Hawkman, Dr. Light, Green Lantern. I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's a great one. Famously, in Detective Comics number 469, this is when the Steve Englehart era begins in Detective. We talked about how last month was the calculator story, and that was written by Bob Rosakis. But here is Englehart taking over, and it's the first appearance of Dr. Phosphorus with art by Walt Simonson. So it was a couple issues before Marshall Rogers came in. I remember this comic. I remember getting this, being excited by it. What was really cool is that the backup story was the origin of Dr. Phosphorus sort of mixed into how the story progressed. That was the first time I had encountered that kind of storytelling, which I recall as being really neat. It was rare. I think that was the only time I'd seen it, because then when you got the backup of the, the origin of the villain in the issue in which the villain debuted, but it was absolutely fantastic issue. That, that cover, wow. Okay, the next one is Justice League of America number 142, a villain called The Construct. And listeners, you know that I hate boxed covers. But this cover is interesting because it's circular. So there's a bunch of circles with Superman, Batman, and Green Lantern chiming in on the action. So that is an interesting take for that. So now we're going to move on and talk about what else is on our pull list. Martin, do you want to go first and tell us what struck your fancy in February of 1977? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was very, very good ones. I was buying off the newsstands, but of course, not all of them came to the UK, but one which did, Action Comics 471, which was the first one of Superman's nastiest enemies, Feora. And of course, she wound up in the Superman movies as Ursa. Yep. Did you get that one? Yeah, that's a great one. And what a cover by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. What else you got, Martin? Yeah, I also got Avengers 159, probably because Graviton looks so darn sexy on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant costume. And also, you've got the old man grey hair at the side, which was lovely. But taking a look at the story today, what stands out is that this is a Jim Shooter script in which an unpowered woman gets a massive slap from a superpowered guy. It's a good job we never had that sort of thing happen again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Defenders 47 was a winner. Wonder Man versus Moon Knight, very early in Moon Knight's comics career. We had the debut of Valkyrie's terrible third costume to replace her terrible second costume. And we had Keith Giffen's pencils on the one hand, overwhelmed by Pablo Marcos's inks. On the other hand, looking very, very good. I did get Marvel Classic Comics because it was a, a giant issue and didn't tend to come. But it was doing the Odyssey and I would have grabbed that in a second. I love the Monsters and God stuff. And finally, one of the others I didn't get, but I would have done, I've definitely picked up more for the Human Rocket 9 because the villain Mega Man looks fun. Looking at the story on Marvel Unlimited, again, it has a little kid being slapped terrifically hard by a grown man. What was What was up with Marvel back then? Terrible stuff. Sean, do you want to go with your list? Absolutely. The first one I picked is Aquaman, and it is absolutely because of Starro. I absolutely love Starro. It still boggles my mind that Starro was a major villain in a DC movie. I love <laughs> that part. That's fantastic. There's a Martian Manhunter backup in it, so that's fantastic. And I don't know if I said it's Adventure Comics 451. The next one is All-Star Comics number 66 with the JSA. And I love the JSA. And this kind of could have gone in the Bat timeline because it is Bruce Wayne of Earth 2. So I don't know that we really mm. count that, but kind of, so that's fine. Isn't this the first one where they went back to the Justice Society logo? Because Justice Society is gigantic on the cover. I have to look real quick and see what the previous... Oh, I bet that is. Yeah, the issue previous, it's All-Star Comics is big with a super squad. And then okay. this issue is the first one where we see on the, the All-Star Comics being small presents the legendary Justice Society of America. So it's interesting that they changed around the logo then. My next one is Hot Stuff. 
the little <laughs> devil number 140 i've seen hot stuff on all these guys arms with the tattoos and wow it's a cartoon it's a comic book character <laughs> it's a winter scene and some little kid is building a snowman but hot stuff says his snowman isn't so hot and he's building a Fireman. The next one is Marvel Tales number 79. And I know somehow we talked about this before, but it's Spider-Man losing his grip on a wall. And that image was reproduced on a Marvel VHS, which we talked about in episode seven. So if you go back and look at those beautiful, horrible Marvel VHS covers. The next one, no argument from anyone, Secret Society of Supervillains number seven. Oh yeah. The great thing about this is it has Hulk Girl on the cover mm -hmm. without Hawkman. That has to be like such a rarity. Superman is down for the count, so you bring in Hulk Girl. Love it. That one's written by our buddy, Bob Rizakis. Ooh, all right. My next one is Shazam, number 29. I love Shazam, love Captain Marvel. And that's Ibac meets Aunt Minerva. So that's super cool. And of course, everyone who knows me knows right now, my last pick is Superman Family, number 183. And the cover has Lois Lane being part of Bed Knobs and Broomsticks because she's on a flying bed. <laughs> and the stories are Supergirl, Shadows of Phantoms, Crypto, yay, Love and the Single Dog, Jimmy Olsen, Short Circuit a Smuggler, Perry White, Whatever Happened to Perry White, Nightwing and Flamebird, Death is a Computer, and Lois Lane, The Day Lois Lane Walked All Over Superman. Martin, do you have any of those? I have the Shazam one because I'm actually so sexy. Well, no, because I, I used to buy Shazam whenever I can because it's such a fantastic book. Superman Family, I wanted, I, I saw that cover in so many house ads and I just wanted it so badly and it never turned up, sadly. Yeah, that is a great cover. It really was, yeah. I had to take the side of Superman. That's an excellent observation about Hawk Girl. Yeah, I mean, I've got a smattering of, of all of these except for, sadly, we never saw the Richie Rich comics. <laughs> well, we might as well talk about the Richie Rich count now. Well, you had 10 to choose from this month. 10. I even counted, Sean, there's nine under R's, but then Super Richie makes 10. <laughs> Super Richie's the one that's going to get you. <laughs> On my list, you mentioned Marvel Tales, but Amazing Spider-Man this month has the first appearance of the Will of the Wisp, which ironically was recently discussed on Mountain Comics by Rob. Not this issue, but a later appearance of him. Black Lightning number two. Last month was off month for Batman Family and Black Lightning number one came out. You know, that was a pretty interesting book for DC at that time. Pretty raw. There was the death of the student. Pretty progressive for DC at the time. I want to point out that Captain America number 209 has the first appearance of movie star Arnim Zola. <laughs> and as mentioned last month, the champions number 13, I did not have the champions at the time, but this one has again, Bill Mantlo and John Byrne. The Freedom Fighters number eight has a great cover of Uncle Sam clobbering the Americando, who says, I'm the symbol of America, not you. And this was cool because it was the DC's version of The Invaders, also written by our buddy Bob Rizakis. I don't know if you ever read The Freedom Fighters, Martin, but that was another wild one in the vein of Secret Society of Supervillains. I did, because again, because distribution was so spotty, I didn't realize that this was almost a secret crossover with The Invaders because they had a version of The Freedom Fighters, didn't they? Exactly. And then House of Mystery, number 252. I didn't buy House of Mystery back then, but man, what a great Neil Adams cover on that one, too. Marvel Super Action, number one. And this one starred Captain America. I did have this one. I remember that. And this reprinted some of the old Captain America, early Silver Age Captain America stories. Who's the woman there? Is that, is that Agent 13? Uh-huh. I believe so. What on earth, Chief? Put up with all the heroes. Marvel Team Up 57 has Spidey and the Black Widow with a cover by Dave Cockrum with Claremont and Byrne at this point hitting on all cylinders. Martin, did you get the black and white 
magazines because I have on my list the Six Million Dollar Man magazine by Charlton number five. I didn't see these very often, but Six Million Dollar Man was my favorite at this time. And if I saw anything with him on it, I picked it up. I don't, I mean, I had these now, but I don't recall if I had it at the time. Fighting the Abominable Snowman and Yeti. And wow, what a great cover. Did you get these? We didn't, I, I never saw Six Million Dollar Man Black and White. We would get some of the, the Marvel ones, the Savage Sword of Conan type. I wasn't a big Conan fan until J.M. Dematisse was writing them in the, in the color comics. I used to get the Rampage and Hulk because that was such mm-hmm. a superb comic early on with Burrit by that. Absolutely fantastic. I never had the Rampaging Hulk until I, a few years ago. I got the um, Marvel Essential. There are two yeah. volumes that have the whole Hulk series in it. They're terrific. Totally different vibe to what you'd normally get. Really superb. I wasn't actually the biggest Six Million Dollar Man fan. I was more Jamie Summers. Ah, got <laughs> it. We have a crossover on the next book with Last Issue's Batman Family, where the bad guy in Underdog number 12 got Killer Moth's <laughs> goop gun and is spitting out the goop at Underdog. And then last but not least, Walt Disney's The Beagle Boys number 34. I would shout out to my dad, who didn't read a lot of comics, but he did like the Beagle Boys, and it's a funny cover. They're reading a bedtime story, which is supposed to be really scary, and it's called Police Stories. So it's really kind of a cute. <laughs> two, just if I can jump in again, even though I've had my turn, sorry. But two more that I, I did buy that I thought were wonderful, because back then, Martin Pascoe was firing on all cylinders with the DC scripts. And there's a, a superb issue of Superman 311, which was an ongoing mm-hmm. storyline over, over several issues, which had Superman fighting the guy who killed those Kryptonian beasties and been cursed with a Kryptonian beastie horn. And then, then there's this Wonder Woman with an amazing cover with her very much putting her chest in the face of the readers but the Earth 2 period with Wonder Woman and the, and the JSA by fighting in you know an Egyptian scenario with her. I can't remember who she was but uh, sexy lady but the, I wish Martin Pascoe had stayed right in DC scripts for a lot longer. He was talented and you know he did go on and write a bunch of episodes for Batman the Animated Series but I think he got into quote serious TV writing after that. Oh, and I bought Welcome Back Hot. I'd never, I'd never seen the show in my life, but, you know, I bought the comic because it's quite amusing. Are we ready to go on to the second story, Sean? Absolutely. The next story is Man Bat Over Manhattan. It has nine pages. The writer is Bob Rosakis, the penciler. Ah, it's Marshall Rogers. The inker is Tex Blaisdell. This has never been reprinted, and we will circle around to that. Man Bat in Man Bat Over Manhattan. Our story starts off in NYC as Manbat stops a purse snatcher from getting away just as the sun is coming up. After that, Manbat wings his way home to find his wife Francine waiting up for him. As the two discuss his night work, WGYN newsman Perb Hapley reports that the criminal known as Snafu had struck the Broadway district, disorienting his victims with a cacophony of dizzying lights and sounds. As they get ready to go to bed for the day, Francine tells Kirk that he will get a chance to bring Snafu down. When Manbat goes out on his patrol that night, our bat cousin Bob tells us that Manbat has an ability that is in absolutely no way related to Peter Parker's spider sense that can tip him off to when a bad guy is going to act on his desire to commit a crime. Out on his patrol, he starts ping-ping-pinging nearly immediately. The two start to tussle, but Manbat is able to overcome Snafu's effects by repeatedly screaming to drown out his effects. Back home, the Langstroms are watching Purd wrap up the case by letting them, and us, know that Snafu's powers came from the mini-circuitry running throughout his costume and pointing out that Manbat will be collecting coin for his efforts. And in a Marvel mid-credits-style scene, we see a setup for a future encounter with the Sunset Gang. 
Martin, what did you think of the story? Uh, not my favourite. Overall, I like that Bob has come up with a new setup because even then Gotham was it had a fair few heroes. So it was nice that he got his own location in New York. And the footnote that he operates at night while the New York heroes, Wonder Woman and Karate Kid. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. They've got it covered, yeah. The script's zippy. The art's a bit uneven. It's great when it's focusing on Man Bat in the city and Francine looks decent, but it's less good when we see the villain. Okay, the villain's badly designed, which is probably Marshall Rogers anyway, but every time we see the villain, it looks really scratchy, scrappy. Looks like he belongs in a different story. The new power is absolutely ridiculous. He's in New York. It would never, ever be shut off. <laughs> Defend that power, guys. Yeah, I, I agree. He's full-on superhero in this setup. Now, Bob's no longer calling Gotham the Big Apple, so I'm glad at least the Big Apple is New York now. It's a new status quo, which is kind of neat. I do like that. I like, again, the interaction. He's got his wife. We didn't see many characters who were married with a child on the way not that that's going to have any problems <laughs> i like how the woman he rescues says the thank you uh sir <laughs> it does seem like a lot of setup for future stories with this sunset gang as we'll find out how about you sean i know you're a huge man bat fan this is when he's full out superhero right i mean he's not the villain so i love this story i don't think this was my first experience with man bat because I definitely had the Power Records story of Man Bat. And I know that I had seen whichever issue he is introduced in. So I knew who Man Bat was. But this is really the first time in comics that I was reading his stories new. So for me, Man Bat has always been a hero, like a ground level detective hero. And that's how I love him best. Because Man Bat started in this issue for the past month, I have gone back and read all of his appearances previous to this. But now when I say all, it's not a ton of them. Yeah, it's only probably half a dozen, right? I think it might be 11, maybe. And the thing is, with very, very rare occasions, it is a case of him being a scientist, experimenting on himself, which of course is the best scientific principle that you can follow (laughs) he's never really presented as a villain he does break into a vault to get a vial but then he leaves money for that francine had a little bit more of a villainous past she was bitten by a vampire bat (laughs) and didn't have control over her changes and in man bat number one his solo book baron time takes control of francine and makes her kill people I was hoping that was written by Bob Haney so we could kind of excuse it, but that was not the case. Jerry Conway, right? Are we talking about that? Conway's Corner, yeah. Yeah. Who drew Man Bat? Was it Steve Ditko there? The first issue is Steve Ditko. The art in the second one is much, much better. And that's why I bring up about Man Bat's face, because I've read, you know, all of these previous issues, a lot of different artists, and it's tough to draw Man Bat's face His face has a distinct style. It's not a human-styled face. And I think Marshall Rogers does a fantastic version. And we'll get into that. I love Man Bat. This is the incarnation of Man Bat that I love the best. We'll go through beat by beat. The great part is it starts off, he's prowling the Broadway district, which I love. And he stops uh, Purse Snatcher. Here they kind of establish that Man Bat is working for money. He is not Bruce Wayne rich at all. He has to make money. And of course... Because he's prowling all night for crime, because he wants to be a crime fighter, he can't really hold down a day job. They have a baby on the way. He gets like 20 bucks for the night. And I know things were different in the 70s, but looking at that New York City apartment, which is huge, $20 is not going to get pay rent. Yeah. 
<laughs> they do have a big apartment, don't they? The nice thing is Kurt works nights, so he comes home. They see on the report that the purse snatcher that he thought he was going after, he actually was pinging off of Snafu. Snafu, I think, is fantastic. I wish we would have seen more of Snafu in the DC Universe. But also, Snafu should be an animated character. His costume, you would do it where each leg is different, each arm is different, the chest is different, the trunks would be different, each boot would be different, a different pattern. But then also with the way animation is, you could have each of those things moving independently. You could have sound effects going around him. You could have dazzle stars. I really, really want Snafu in an animated movie. And I realize I've been talking nonstop for five minutes, so I'm going <laughs> to cool down a little bit and let you guys jump in so far. Yeah, what do you think of Snafu, Martin? Snafu pretty much describes it. I mean, putting them into animation, that's just inviting kids to ask their parents what it stands for. A bit of a naughty word in there, although Bob uses a milder version of the acronym. I mean, Snafu, I hate him on every level. I suppose the power is pretty good if you're fighting man bad because you can just mess your senses up. I think Bob Rosarkis might have had a backstory that he didn't get to tell you because he seems to have the goggles of Mirror Master. The leg of the top is this ultra the multi-flash villain. It's interesting to point that out. When we reviewed the first appearance of Man Bat, the reprint of it in issue number one, it was a sound or silence-based gang that, mm-hmm. that that they were going up against. And the theme of that story written, that was written by Denny O'Neill, of course, was the audio. I think Bob is playing off of that. What's the opposite of that is sort of creating all these cacophonous type sounds. This is the point where he just pops a pill to go back and forth between Man Bat and Kurt Langstrom. And this is the first appearance of that because it was always like a vial. It was always liquid. And it, it makes it just easier that you have like a yeah. capsule. Or a- and obviously nowadays they downplay that on Our Man too. That's problematic with steroids and other types mm-hmm. of drugs. I like to have money problems. The new power, the pinging for the evilness, that's another one of the things, things you just got to wave away. He's in New York, though. It would never, it would never be. Done. Yeah, that's your point. You're, you're absolutely right, Martin. He couldn't get any sleep. <laughs> I was going to say, I actually have no problem with that. I can buy into that 100% until Martin did point out it's New York City. So yeah, every single block, you're going to have 15 different people. My favorite panel of the story is on page eight, the top right, where... Man Bat is diving towards, we get a close-up yeah. of his face and his hands. That's the flashes of Marshall Rogers as we see him developing. And this is only his like fourth or fifth published story. And the next panel where it's like this big one screen with, with a silhouette of, of Man Bat flying towards us away yeah. from us. That's good graphic thinking. So you can see the potentials there, but goodness me, that villain. Francine, though, she is so... I know she's had a moment's darkness herself, but so understanding. I mean, she's pregnant. And I would be telling a proper daytime job because after she's going to have what she assumes is Kirk Jr., they'll need a steady income. And if he's working night and has to sleep during the day, that's not ideal for a new mum because he's going to be awake all the day and all the night and going to try and have to get some sleep where she can get it. And if he's out all night, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not a parent, of, as far as I know, but it's not <laughs> a, a strange setup. Yeah, no, I hear you. She's very understanding. You were talking about Marshall Rogers' artwork, and I've always liked Marshall Rogers. When I was a little kid, just getting into comics, I probably did understand that different people drew them. But I don't know that I could really tell you why it looks different or that kind of thing. But I remember Marshall Rogers. I remember thinking, this looks different. Like, I I like the way this looks. And of course, years later, you find out, and I forget, was he an architect or he studied architecture? He studied architecture. Yeah. And that, that it clicks in, then, oh my God, well, no wonder, like, he's fantastic at drawing buildings. 
and scale on the first page is just marvelous really really good yeah like i said i think there's a lot of flashes of the brilliance that he'll continue to develop rather quickly not that long until he does get into his detective comics run oh yeah the, the way he's got the, the sound effects sort of circling around the villain yeah right? The first panel of page five, okay, if you're going close, the villain's head's rather wonky, but he totally conveys the chaos of the moment. Excellent. With Roger's architecture, I think that helps him with scale of tilted panels and things like that. On page six, it's six panels, panel number one, two, three, four, five, where Manbat is like looking over the alley mm. and his face is half in shadow, but you see his wings. Oh my God, I love that shot of him. I, I just think it looks so fantastic. Okay, so now I'm going to go on 20 minutes more why I love the story. However, before we move on, though, I do want to take a minute now to talk about Tex Blaisdell, who was the inker of this story. He was a relatively unfamiliar name to me, guys. You know, maybe not to some of our listeners, but but he was unfamiliar to me. Despite having about 150 credits in comic books, according to Mike's Amazing World, Tex was much better known as a newspaper comic strip artist. He was born as Philip Blaisdell in Houston, Texas, that's the name Tex, studied at the Art Student League in New York, where I'm going to bet he got that nickname Tex. During World War II, he was in the U.S. Air Force. Back in civilian life, he started out as an assistant on newspaper comics by some famous names, Stan Drake, Will Eisner, Erwin Hazen, and Al Cap. Even I know there's some big names in comic strips. Mm -hmm. He worked with Hal Foster on Prince Valiant in the 1960s. Originally, he just did backgrounds. But eventually his contribution escalated to finish everything but the faces while his assistant, Lee Mars, inked the backgrounds. But a lot changed for him in 1968. He actually started doing some inking work for DC, which we'll talk about in a second. But Sean, you will be delighted to find out that he took over the Little Orphan Annie strip <laughs> after Harold Gray's death in 1968. So the, the artist died and he continued working on that until 1973. During this time, Blaisdell worked in a studio on the fourth floor at 144 West 57th Street, overlooking dance studios and the rear of Carnegie Hall. I thought that was neat. But the coolest thing I found was a YouTube video of Tex Blaisdell on the game show To Tell the Truth. Oh. Celebrities must guess which of the three contestants are really Tex. And he even draws a quick Annie sketch at the end. So I've got a link to the video that I'll put in the show notes and everybody should check it out. It is a hoot. This is how he was best known the artist of Little Orphan Annie. So I thought that was really cool. Closer to home for us, as I mentioned, he started doing a lot of inking for comic books in 68, and he continued this into the early 1980s. He inked Green Lantern and Adam Strange, Superman and The Flash, Wonder Woman. The only covers I see he inked, according to Mike's Amazing World, were for some humor books like Leave It to Binky. Strangely, he also inked Tim Truman's cover to Airboy Number 6 from 1986, which I bought and have read, but I have no idea why he did it unless maybe Truman or writer Chuck Dixon was a fan of Tex and asked him to do it. And last but not least, he was also a teacher at some place named the Joe Kubert School of Cartoon and Graphic Art for a number of years. I wish we knew somebody who went there. We maybe could ask them if they ever met Tex. I don't know. As I mentioned, for, for comic books, according to Mike's Amazing World, he had about 150 credits for about 1,800 pages. No real long run on any given title, humor books, some Superman titles, a lot of backups and shorter stories. This was his only appearance in Batman Family. He passed away in 1999. So I couldn't resist 
texts based on the Annie connection. I'm sure he was an interesting guy. And I thought our listeners might like hearing a little bit more about him. Well, I, I certainly did. The link with Tim Truman went to the Cuba school. That's probably it. Yeah. And I knew Tex Bersdale mainly from, he did a heck of a lot of, I've seen to, a heck of a lot of inks over Cursed Swan in the suit, on the Superman story. Longtime cousins know that I will do anything to talk about Dead Man on a Batman family show. So now I think maybe Annie is another unofficial <laughs> member of the Batman family. So we'll see if we can get her in. Look at her eyes. She has the middle lenses over her eyes. <laughs> That's where they got the idea for the mask. Yeah, great catch, Martin. Yeah. Let's move on to the Bat Branding segment. So in this segment, we're going to discuss the non-story pages. Sean, you want to kick us off? Absolutely. So I'm going to get this wrong. What's the phrase? An enigma wrapped in a mystery, embellished with a conundrum, sent via Federal Express to confusion because that is the story of the wonder woman maltese cupcake so obviously you have a page it's a hostess ad there's not gonna be time for depth i don't understand this at all some guy talks to wonder woman sends her out on a mission for a cupcake but then the person who helps her is shady and then she sends her to someone else and then the guy who hired her is also in on that i don't understand this at all. <laughs> however in the story the villain is saying instead you find a lady who throws a big shadow ha 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 ho 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 i think this is where they got the idea for ho-hos <laughs> which is a hostess product. Oh, yeah, Martin, did you see any of these when you were uh, over in the US recently? I didn't see the cupcakes I was looking for because I, I, these these look quite nice. Well, they look like what we would have called Mr. Kipling's cupcakes. But I mean, this this is the best of all hostess ads, no question. It's a fantastic homage to the random nonsense of Dashiell Hammett's Maltese Falcon it? It's, okay, it's so talky that the biggest threat to Diana is being crushed by the word balloons. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. It is marvellous, clever, so imaginative. That's it. If you get me reading an advert like that, and at the end I'm thinking, I want a hostess product to eat now. It's a winner. <laughs> I'm not a betting man. I am almost willing to bet there are more words in this hostess ad than there is in a modern DC comic. I mean, they put so much work in it because obviously, you know, you'd, you'd have seen the, the film at least of the Maltese Falcon, and it makes no darn sense. Even Dashiell Hammett admitted the story made no sense, and this makes no sense but in a shorter space, so it's probably better. The next ad we're going to talk about is is what I like to call I've been tomahawked. <laughs> we are going to talk about the Super Sea Monkeys ad. And I think everyone understands this. Sea Monkeys had a ton of ads with these amphibian characters. They have the fish fins and everything. And Happy families. Yes. Now the castle isn't in this one, but that's really the main one that you remember. And you bought Sea Monkeys. And thank God I never bought Sea Monkeys because I would have been heartbroken and crushed. The Sea Monkeys <laughs> do not look like these things. They're brine shrimp. I know in some of them, but they must have been sued because in some of them, there's like a little inset that says like actual picture of a brine fish. Now this one must have been before they got called. Bat Cousins, if you had been tomahawked and bought these super sea monkeys, please write in and let us know. Because I'm not going to say we're going to pay for therapy, but we will listen and try to help you out. But did you not have a thing in America called truth in advertising? I mean, how did they get away with it? Or was it that did, did the advertisers say the real life tatty little insect is so unlike the yellows of the underwater Jetsons that even dumb, dumb little kids wouldn't believe it? It's just, how could they get away with it? You know, it's amazing, Martin. I mean, there's a long history, right, in comic books of these wacky ads. I just think it's so far under the radar of what the truth in advertising people are looking 
looking at. I agree with you. It's amazing how they can get away with that. There are 10,000 words on this page. Yeah. And I'm trying I'm trying to scan <laughs> if they even ever say brine shrimp once. And even if they do, back then, who knows what they were? You would think a brine shrimp looks like this woman. I will grant you, how did this woman see monkey have a little bow in her hair? So that, <laughs> that fine. I can grant that. I'm not going to get a little bow, but I do want fish people. Oh, I think we've had enough of the sea monkeys. At the end of the Batgirl Robin story, there's a text page, presumably written by Bob, but doesn't have a credit on it. It's called Batman's Bureau of Missing Villains, and we will certainly include it in the gallery. And I'm like, huh? It just seems like Bob Rzak has went into the library of detective comics and threw open the book and put his fingers down and said, let's do a text on those. The first is the fox, the shark, and the vulture. The terrible trio, other than the appearances they mentioned here, the two appearances they mentioned, had no other pre-crisis appearances. They did appear in Batgirl, I think, a couple of years ago. Why he chose to focus on them, was he planning to bring them back as well? Who knows? And then there's Dr. No-Face, who <laughs> sort of like the question, but to an extreme, he erased his whole head, not until he's got no hair or back of the head or anything. Again, Rob Bob or Julia Shorts or whoever chose to put these two guys in here is a pretty bizarre text page, even more bizarre than some of the other ones we've seen. Well, it, it could be that maybe Bob was indeed planning to bring Dr. Norface back and reveal that it was actually Lex Luthor with his head on backwards. <laughs> There's something you can do with a character with such a unique looking and on the nose name. Do something wacky. And I like the Terrible Trio. I'd met them in one of these comics I'd inherited from the early 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you say, they had, they, there was a version in Batgirl. And I think there was even a, a teenage version in Gotham Academy recently. If you've got the DC Unlimited, read them all. I just have two quick things to add. Dr. No-Face, oh my God, that looks totally like it should be from Dick Tracy. Mm. Yep. And the other thing is, we were talking about the DC Universe Infinite App. This text page is actually included... When you look at Batman Family number 11 on the DC Universe app, and that surprises me because that kind of stuff doesn't really make the transition. And I'm all for it. I, I wish everything could be in the book. Especially the... Especially the letters pages. Oh, look <laughs> at us. So as always, I really am sending a super sincere invitation to Michael Sandifer, Scott Gibson, and Scott Taylor to come on the show. If you are still listening, please come on and tell us about having your letter in Batman Family. And really, everything that these three letters talk about are things that we have talked about. Yeah, I thought that was amazing. With Jula and Scarecrow and everything. I'm not even going to go into it because literally everything that these letters are about, people talk about when they talk about the Joker's daughter, which is Two-Face's daughter. The only thing I will add is at the very end, Scott Taylor says, but I must ask what clues led Robin to his conclusion that Dula was Harvey Dent's daughter. And our bat cousin, Bob, says, Elementary, my dear Scottson, Dick checked out the last names of Batman's foes, Nigma, Riddler, Kyle, Catwoman, etc., until he came up with Dula Dent among the student listings at Hudson. A quick check of her background confirmed his suspicions, and he knew who he was dealing with. Because no reader would want that to be actually in the story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> A perfectly fine answer, but you're absolutely right. But I, I was impressed by Bob's very honest answer to Scott Gibson's letter about how Duella and Robin could be the same age. Because, you know, basically said, comics, whatever works for the story. Yeah, he was honest. And people know, like, I'm super forgiving. A baby's rocket can come from another planet if you get bit by a radioactive spider. You do have to suspend belief. 
But if two characters are the same age, they probably should age at the same. These are two human beings on the same earth. So they probably should age at the same rate. Moving on, there's another ad, which I find terrific. And it's called February is the second month. And it features the second issue of Jonah Hex, the second appearance of Black Lightning, the second Scalp Hunter story in Weird Western Tales, and the second set of the first two dollar comics. I'm like, Two-Face would have loved this ad. <laughs> I really do miss a mad little house ads like that. Sean, I wasn't sure if you cared about the next one. So I kind of do and I kind of don't. So the next one is another like almost all text ad. The huge banner, King Kong is back. And basically, I want to talk about this because I'm going to repeat something you said before. So this is a poster magazine. It's funny because they say it's a poster book, but it's not. It's a poster magazine. Yeah. And I thought you'd love those kind of things, right? I do. Just that idea that you take a huge, basically, like sheet of paper, fold it over uh, two, three, four times, and you get like a magazine style, but it keeps unfolding and unfolding and unfolding. I remember seeing a Dumbo one, which I would love to see now. I would love to have that. There was a Kids from Fame one, which astounds me. But that's what this is. So it's a poster book. And I couldn't really tell if this was for the original King Kong or the 70s remake. So I looked in and the cover of the poster book is the 77, 78 movie with Jeff Bridges and Jessica Lange. Cousins, let me tell you, I took one for the team because I decided to watch that King Kong movie. <laughs> Partially for this, partially because there used to be a King Kong ride at Universal Studios yes, in Florida. I remember that. I did that ride in 94. Listeners, I don't want to say that you owe me, but that movie is horrible. The special effects are bad. The acting is bad. The score is good. Actually, let me frame it this way. If you love that movie, please write in and tell us why. Because I guess find your joy and I will not make fun of anything like that. But uh Listeners, Sean likes to point out things that are in the script that, that I'll put in. And happens to be in this script, I put on there, you want to say anything about the giant poster book, Sean? He says, I can mention it, but I don't really have anything to say. So that was Sean with nothing to say. <laughs> Moving on a few pages later. Are you going to change the topic? <laughs> yes, I will change the topic to a fabulous full page ad. Who or what is the changing man? And it's a new kind of superhero from Steve Ditko in DC coming your way in March. And it's a great ad of Shade the Changing Man. And it's got this sort of stack of comics that are plain. They're plain blue, but the figure of Shade in his fancy vest changing into his bestial form. And a very cool ad. I remember when this came out, I bought it for at least the first few issues, but I remember not really getting it. <laughs> and I do know I thought he was way cooler when he came back for a little while. He was in the Suicide Squad, then, of course, got revamped at Vertigo and all the rest. I just really like this ad. I don't know, Martin, did you ever read Shade the Changing Man? The thing with DC Comics, we rarely actually saw the first issues of anything for some reason. So I read his thing issues two and three, and it just wasn't my cup of tea at all. I was not interested and didn't like the art. I loved the Vertigo series a bit. thought it was brilliant. Didn't think it really fit into Suicide Squad, but I love the series. So, even if, but yeah, the, the Vertigo series was excellent. So, I have nothing to say about the changing man. So give me two minutes. <laughs> it is interesting because the ad doesn't say shade. Yeah. Yeah. The changing man. So I want, did they just not have that yet? Or was that added later? Because the very top part, who or what is like, that part is very huge. So it's not that they couldn't fit it in because you would just shrink that down. So my guess is maybe they didn't have it. 
But yeah, I think it's really striking how that ghostly image is like rising out of mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a cool ad. Did you ever hear the record by Paul Weller, The Changing Man? So listeners, feel free to skip ahead probably half an hour. No, not half an hour, please. So Paul Weller, I'm not really familiar with his solo stuff, but man, I love the style council. Very, very good stuff. Yeah. Well, homework. Have a look for the changing man. Apparently it was what his daughter called her doll. So seemingly nothing to do with Shade, but that's what I always thought of. It's one of my favorite comic book records, but not as good as Sergeant Rock is going to help me by XTC. Which the XTC video of maybe King of Wishful Thinking references Steed and Peel the Avengers. Well, hey. I'm not sure about the song. There definitely is an XTC video that references the Avengers. But do you know the Sergeant Rock song? No. Oh, I'll send that to you later. It's brilliant. Cool. Oh, I've, I've really gone off track. Forgive me, guys. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> let, let's get back to something that listeners maybe care about. So this last one is a Heroes World ad. And I'm not prepared to say that I've been Tomahawk, but there's some debate about that. This is for the DC Super Power Shield. And the ad shows these kids flinging up these power shields that have the Superman logo and a Superman figure has the Batman logo and the Batman figure. And those power shields are riding high in the sky, probably two miles above these kids. (laughs) So we are going to provide a photo in the gallery for this. Because I actually had the Superman power shield. No way, really? Yes. And let me tell you, it's this handheld device. It's as big as a kid's hand. And then there's a cardboard shield that lays on top of that. And then on top of that, you put a little spinny helicopter disc thing. So you put the disc thing on top of the blue thing, you pull a string, and the little helicopter thing flies up. But the power shield, like, literally just lays there. There's there's like a... I thought it was like a Frisbee. <laughs> yeah, I know. The power shield is not flat. So eventually, like, I just didn't even use the power shield because the power shield part doesn't even need to be on the toy to work. It's just resting there. It was like a flying toy. So that was fine. All right. You guys ready to move on? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. All right. So our third story, a delightful seven pager called Surprise, Surprise, starring Commissioner Gordon and Alfred, once again written by Bob Rosakis, this time art by Carl Potts and Frank McLaughlin. And it was reprinted later in the Best of DC Digest number 51 from 1984. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows Sean loves his digest. Yes. It is February 19th, and Commissioner Gordon is taking the afternoon off, but not to play golf. He is surprisingly picked up by none other than our own Alfred Pennyworth. What can this dauntless duo be up to? They head to Empty Wayne Manor. Remember, this is the 70s where Bruce and Alfred lived in a highly practical penthouse on top of a skyscraper with a tree inside it and a bat cave underneath it. Anyway, they are there to prepare for a surprise birthday party for Bruce. But as they decorate, Alfred becomes worried that Jim is getting a little too close to some of the secrets in Wayne Manor. So Alfred sneaks down to the bat cave to dress up like a robber to distract him. I mean, couldn't he just need nachos or something? Anyway, it actually works, and Jim gives chase a little too well, it seems, as he tackles Alfred, resulting in our favorite butler taking a pretty rough knock to the noggin. But Alfred does manage to elude Jim and doubles back for another quick change in the Batcave. He returns before Jim realizes he has been gone. Or does he? Alfred forgets to remove the robber's distinctive green shoes, 
Sean, I think we're going to call that style the Lizanne. <laughs> Eagle-eyed Jim notices, but doesn't say anything, respecting that Alfred clearly has secrets. But then the groovy duo of Dick and Lori arrive to help finish the preparations. And before you know it, the guests and the birthday boy arrive too. Vicki Vale laments that she wishes Bruce's friend Batman were there too. But Jim Gordon tells her not to let it bother her, since he knows that Batman is there. In spirit. Right, Bruce? Dick? Alfred? The end. What did you guys think? Martin? I loved the best story in the comic for me. Best story in the comic. Two of the best supporting characters in all of comics teamed up. Two half-decent logos, especially like Jim's police scene. (laughs) You have second time in two issues, the return of one of Bruce Wayne's old girlfriend types. Good art from Carl Potts that you you didn't see draw very much before he became a Marvel Comics editor. Loved it. Um, I do like it. And definitely knowing what's coming definitely adds weight to it. And at the time, I read it. It was great. I really enjoyed it. At the time, I don't even know if I necessarily knew who Vicki Vale was. My only quibble now is they make such a big, well, not a big deal, but there is like a bullet mentioned on the cover. The debut of a new team, Commissioner Gordon and Alfred. And I think I'd even have less of a complaint if it went on that they did have a team up. I would have liked to have read like a quote unquote real team up of Jim and Alfred. Solving a crime. Yeah, someone goes missing. And the obvious thing would be Bruce Wayne goes missing, you know, and the two of them team up for a story. Now, I will say, I remember once I was watching Cisco and Ebert and they were talking about a movie. One of them said, oh, I wish they would have done this, this and this. And the other one said, well, you can't fault a movie for what it isn't. You have to fault it for what it is. So this story, I don't necessarily fault because it is a neat story. But I want to team up with Commissioner Gordon and Alfred. Now, the other thing I would say, I can tell our back cousins that Paul read this story on the DC Universe app because he talked about Alfred's green shoes. But in the physical issue comic book, his shoes are blue. You're right. (laughs) I actually think it reads better on the app because it's really distinctive with the green. I'm looking at the actual issue now. They're blue. It's a different shoe. And you've got the scene of Commissioner Gordon going, hmm, looking down at Alfred's shoe and realizing that he was the burglar. But you're right. In the physical comic, the shoes are blue. Yeah. How interesting. So that's something they corrected. That's cool. I like it up in the air, whether Commissioner Gordon knows that Bruce is Batman or not. Yeah. In my little head canon, I want to think that Bob Rosakis was pushing for that to bring him into the fold. But they probably got cold feet knowing how big a deal secret identities were. I mean, they didn't even let Batgirl know at this time. Although she figured out Dick, so she knows about Bruce now, too. I think that's cool. He's looking at the phone. And does he notice that unmarked line? And if he pushed the button, would it call his office? (laughs) Does someone else answer if Commissioner Gordon's not there? I don't know. Think about the one with the glass case on the TV show, right? (laughs) When I read that as a kid, that just confirmed to me that he definitely knew. And I thought, yes, that was the most solid moments that I could remember up to that point he's worked it out but as you say he should have he should have worked out in about Batman's second appearance or oh, that Bruce Wayne board player boy he knew him Batman appears I think so I think I think he knew you mentioned Carl Potts art Martin I thought it was quite good yeah I really really liked it I mean it's nice things by Frank McLaughlin it's got my favorite panel in the whole issue bottom of page five Commissioner Gordon outside with the tree shadows all over Martin I was gonna say that I love that panel Yeah, as always, we agree, Sean. (laughs) 100%. In this time, 
Commissioner Gordon always reminded me of Hal Linden and Barney Miller. He's just so handsome and he plays a cop. So it makes me think that he's like Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> I like that. We had, we, had, we had Barney Miller. Carl Potts, I didn't see much artwork by him. I know he did the Aqualad backup strips back around the time. But uh, then he went to Marvel and became an editor, which is a shame because obviously this was quite early in his career. And if he'd stuck around to the arts, I think he might have done Alien Legion as well, but who knows how great he would have got, because even back here you would see imaginative things like the, the series of panels where Commissioner Gordon is looking at the telephone and pressing buttons or whatever, the little tiny slivers, that's very imaginative, and I love that sort of thing. There is an unfortunate art mistake. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I've just got Vicky Vale's miscolored hair, but that's not an art mistake, so tell us. At the bottom of page three, you see Alfred going into the grandfather clock, and in the first panel, it's 2.30, and then the second panel, it, it kind of looks like it's 2.32 or so. But then when he opens it up, they either forgot to draw the minute hand or like it was covered up with inking or whatever, because now it makes it look like it's 10 after 2. I can no prize that. He opened the clock with such force that the other hand fell onto the floor. <laughs> I'll accept it. It was so, so nice to see Vicky Vale again. Even though Bob Rizark has just married her, suddenly Vicky Vale's married. Yeah, that was weird. Never found out any problem. Never mentioned again, I don't think, unless it was mentioned when Vicky came back a little later in the Bronze Age. But supposedly she married him in Europe while working for Iris Allen's Picture News. Lana Lang also went to Europe at this point for the, for the Daily Planet or WGBS. And she got married to a counter off panel in Europe. So I wonder whether they had a buy one, get one free, two for one red <laughs> wedding. It's, it's the theme of the issue. It's all weddings. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to ask Bob what, what he was thinking. Of, just to, you know, suddenly, suddenly Vicky's got married and it's like nothing was ever done with this guy. While we were talking, guys, I looked up Carl Potts' story credits as an artist and he's got 94 and only the first one to six or so were for DC. We've got the Superman family. Death is a computer story of Nightwing and Flamebird in Superman family, guys, which mm. I thought was cool. And then this one, and then the three-part Aqualad story you mentioned, and then a lot of Marvel credits in Power Man and Iron Fist and things like that. Punisher War Journal as, as the writer-penciler. I forgot about that. And then I think he got too busy being an editor, but he did have 94 story credits. Not too bad, no, but I wonder if those those pages or the short story credits, sometimes they have them uh, repeated if whether in reprints, although anyway, let's let's take yeah, let's say ninety-four. I would love to see more from him. But one question I have about the issue, page five, you have a uh, burglar Alfred kicks poor Commissioner Gordon in the heed, and I like his fancy 70s tinted glasses, but then you have him Alfred apparently walk on water is this swimming pool like? <laughs> i think it's like, like a pool. fountain yeah reflecting pool that kind of thing yeah that is weird that why he couldn't just be running across the grass i don't know why they had that a pool there or a reflecting pool whatever it is yeah it is a little strange maybe because bruce had the pool that went around the penthouse they added one at wayne manor <laughs> to just have a moat around there too martin yeah look, the bat boat comes out of it yeah <laughs> yeah really Okay, we are now going to go from Commissioner Gordon and Alfred to Gabriel's Horn, the hip happening hangout for the Teen Titans in the 1970s, when we talk about the most 1970s moment in the issue. We have moved this segment to the end of the episode because now we can talk about every story in the book because they all took place at the same time. Martin, let's start with you. What do you have? Well, the most 1970s moment for me was on page seven of the Batgirl Robin team up. Mm -hmm. You have Batgirl 
in a underground parking garage and it directly references the Watergate affair, mm-hmm. which was the biggest domestic news story of the decade, probably worldwide. How can that be beaten? Well, are we beholden to actual real life events, Martin? That's a, no, I'm just easy. No, I agree. I had that on my list. That's a great one. But I have to say that also in this story, Sean, gas was 61.9 cents. And I Googled it and the average price of gas in 1977 was 62 cents. Wow. Yes. On the video feed, they saw me marking off because I did have Watergate. Oh. I did have gas station. I have four other instances. In the first story, do you have them? No, no, no. So no. So only one in this story. Yeah, I don't have any more in the first story. Okay, so this this one's kind of iffy, but I'm going to accept it because it's mine. <laughs> At the wedding, Robin makes a point that says, I know you're supposed to throw rice at the groom, but I'm going to throw pepper. And nowadays, probably don't throw rice at a wedding because, quote unquote, birds eat the rice and it expands in their stomach and kills them. Wow, that's it's completely false. That's not true. If you are at a wedding, most people don't throw rice anymore. But if you are throwing rice, it's completely fine. It's a made up story. I don't think we ever did in the UK. We have confetti. Do you not have confetti in the US? <laughs> we have confetti. I think maybe in the past year or two, we're allowed to have confetti now. <laughs> it was invented. <laughs> but it's not really like a wedding thing so much. How about in the man bat story? What do you have, Sean? I have three, but we'll let Martin go first. Do you have any more, Martin? Or I know I only looked for one because I thought you only wanted one. Originally, that was our intent, Martin, but it's like, We've been enjoying this Gabriel Horde yeah. thing so much. We're like yeah. scouring every page for them now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, in that case, in the Man Bath story, Kurt Langstrom, very good looking man, got his shirt off, appalling 1970s mutton chops. <laughs> there you go. That's a good one. <laughs> Once again, we do not kink shame. So if mutton chops are your thing, that is perfectly fine and acceptable. I had in that one the TV shape and the antenna of the yes. TV in their apartment. And did you notice... That on page, where is it? Don't say page five. Oh, okay. You can have it then. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, in the very deep background behind this great scene of <gasps> Snafu uh, throwing yeah. his things around, you notice that coming soon is a movie with Marlon Brando called Superman. Yep. Yeah. So that was a great one. Now, I let you have that one. All right, you have I let that. you have that one because so this one is near and dear to my heart. On the very first page, up in the corner, you see the TKTS banner. Mm-hmm. So what that is, when you're on Broadway, you can get discounted tickets at the TKTS place. And they used to have huge banners that looked like this. Now, when you see the red benches, that's the TKTS place, and they don't have the banners. But they used to have banners like this. I'll supply a photo from Google that we can put in the show notes. But the Superman one was my favorite one. <laughs> and I didn't have any for Commissioner Gore. Well, I guess the phone. The phone with a cord and multiple lines with buttons, right? Yeah. I almost think we should grandfather in phones. <laughs> Alfred's driving that giant Lincoln. The paper the book was printed on is from the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the car. Oh, my God. Yeah, the car. Yeah. Long cars. Yeah, that's a great one. And Bruce does show up in a groovy turtleneck and jacket. That was the closest (laughs) thing I had. Yeah, not a lot in the last one. Oh, my goodness. Guys, I think that about wraps it up for the issue. 
Martin, we just want to thank you for flying over the pond to attend our reunion this month. Would you like to remind everybody where they can find you? They can find me at my blog, which is called Too Dangerous for a Girl, which does comic reviews. And they can find me on Twitter at Dangerous2 or at March Gray. At March Gray is more active. Find me there and you can find me in comment sections everywhere. <laughs> Again, we really appreciate you coming on and we said it before we started recording. We appreciate your support of the show and being an active member of the community. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's really, really great to play in your backyard of the manor. <laughs> Martin, thank you so much. Thanks. All right. We're going to now play some podcast promos and when we return, we will read your Listener feedback. Santa, who's there? Hyperion to a Santa. Follow Siskoid's deep scene-by-scene dive into adaptations of Shakespeare's Hamlet on Hyperion to a Satyr, the Fire and Water Network's Hamlet podcast. To listen or not to listen isn't the question, as you well know. Kenneth Branagh, Derek Jacobi, Mel Gibson, Lawrence Olivier, Ethan Hawke, David Tennant, Classics Illustrated, and many more covered every episode at fireandwaterpodcast.com or where you usually get your podcasts. Welcome back. Live from Baltimore, Sean and I just had our first in-person Bat Family reunion over lunch. We will include some pictures in the gallery and are really having a good time getting together live and in person. It's been great. Now we will read and respond to your listener feedback from episode 10, The Return of Batwoman and The Second Boy Wonder. First up, Martin Minoza says, Another great show. I bought this one off the spinner rack back in the day, and I love The Return of Batwoman. That's awesome, Martin. Glad to have you on board. Thanks, Martin. Now, Bat Cousin and Network co-founder Chris Franklin adds, Great show, guys. Todd was a great guest, and he did a bang-up job on his first podcast. Thanks for the spotlight on John Cownan. He was the artist on Batman when I first started buying the book, or when my mom started buying it for me. I was only three. One distinctive thing about his Batman He gave him forehead wrinkles in his cow. I don't think I've ever seen that since, except maybe from Alex Ross. (laughs) Have you guys ever noticed Batwoman's costume was redesigned for this issue? Kathy never had a red bat on her chest before. That look will continue in many subsequent appearances, including my beloved Brave and the Bold number 182. Also, artists seem unsure on how to interpret the heavy shadows used on Kathy's yellow costume in the early Silver Age. Here, she seems to have black pinstripes up and down her arms in several panels. And what's with the fuzzy glove cuffs? (laughs) Also, not part of her original look. Now, this is Sean speaking. I'm going to speak up for the fuzzy glove cuffs because that's what I'm wearing right now. It is is Comic-Con after all. It's very attractive. Chris goes on to say, a few art notes. The awesome cover of Superman Family number 182 is actually penciled by Kurt Swan and inked by Neil Adams. You know me, always defending Kurt Swan. Yeah, sorry about that, Chris. You are 100% correct. There was no slight on Kurt Swan intended. And wow, I did not notice the change in costumes. Glad you are here and part of our family to keep us straight. Chris goes on. Also, I think the story, The Second Robin, was drawn by Sheldon Mordorff, not Infantino. Carmine didn't come into the series until the new look slash yellow oval era began. Yeah, the Super Friends car. 
That thing haunts my dreams. <laughs> and the sad part is, it's actually really cheap looking, but it's so rare. The art of Batman and Superman on the bottom of that ad page, advertising Power Records, is from that same Super DC 1976 calendar, which appears to be missing. Hey! <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Chris. If I find one here at the Baltimore Comic Con, I'll purchase mine and yours will miraculously <laughs> reappear. Chris goes on to say, Not sure I want to be known as the creepy uncle, <laughs> but I will take Uncle Creepy. Thanks for running the House of Frankenstein promo. Oh, and Sean mentioned both Back Issue and Christmas Comics. Somehow, when we discussed the Robin Christmas story, I failed to mention I wrote an article on Batman-related Christmas stories in the Bronze Age for Back Issue number 85. That's where I first learned of the Dr. Zinzin story myself. It's nuts. <laughs> Thanks, Chris, as always. Next up, another Network All-Star and Bat newlywed, Rob Kelly, gets into the act. I don't recall Killer Moth's mask ever having a mouth. In any case, I like it. It's creepy and weird. Growing up, I was meh on John Cowan's art. It was okay, not bad, not spectacular. Now that I'm older, I feel exactly the same. Regarding the Super Friends toy car, I've never even seen it for sale anywhere, though from what I've heard, it goes for thousands. The paint jobs on the characters is something, and he lists up posts of uh, some images of the Super Friends car, which is pretty funny. Great episode as usual. Thank you, Rob. Next up, the guest from this very episode, Batty Uncle Martin Gray. It's for another great show, cousins, and how brilliant to have an actual, real, proper, genuine relative who is an animal trainer on the show. As a fan of Rob Kelly's Super Friends for All Mankind podcast, I have to ask, is Cousin Todd secretly the menagerie man? <laughs> He'd like to think so. They do have a dog, but they only have one animal in their house. This was a pretty decent issue, starting with that great cover. I agree, though. Since Batwoman has taken up space in an inset panel, why not just have it swinging in off the logo or something? Yeah, that would have been cool. I was a John Carlin fan, actively happy to see his byline pop up. I'm always down for straightforward, clean artwork. I bought The Strange Death of the Batman trade paperback last year. It's great to have the story in one volume, and there were some terrific thematically linked reprint extras too, so I was delighted to hear the background material about John's life. It's great to know that a creator who wasn't a big name nevertheless had a busy, creatively fulfilling career. Yeah, I thought he was interesting because I didn't realize this was his second job, and that was kind of neat. I love that storyline. I didn't pick up that trade paperback. Maybe I will know on your recommendation. I do recommend it. I remember having the Riddler issue at the time, bought it off the stands, had to piecemeal get all the other three issues. And then even when the paperback came out, I'm like, I don't care. I want it again. So I bought it again. Just that cover, that first cover is fantastic with all the villains. I oh, love it. I remember when Batman Family 10 came out that I was terribly shocked by Babs yelling, Boogers! <laughs> was Booger not good in the USA? It's like the spy who shagged me. We know it's a quote-unquote bad word. I think almost every bad word has the okay version. Like situation normal, all fouled up. So yeah, buggers doesn't mean that to us. But bugger not mean buggery in the US. Technically, but it, it's such almost an archaic term really for us. Well, she shocked me. Back to Martin in the comments. As for the story, I was thrilled a bit to have Kathy Kane return after so long, even if she had gone anti-frump with the hair. Which <laughs> was a fool not to romance Kathy. She was the perfect partner, the crime fighter, thoroughly minted, and she looks just like Catwoman. Also, <laughs> Bob Brown was another favourite artist, and Vince Coletta did 
do a bad job at all. Yeah, I'll say it again. When Vince put the time in, and I think he mainly put the time in on the faces and the figures, he was a good artist. In the superb story with Dick's ratty relatives, that note about Alfred's weight loss and lip growth appears in a panel in which Alfred's the size of an ant. Even in the earlier panels, he didn't look that poorly. And why didn't the editor tell readers that it all happened in Detective Comics 83? Possibly the first time a comic book character was changed to match a screen portrayal. That's a really good observation, and I bet that is true. Screen representation for comic books wasn't the blockbuster movie that it is now. So I, I I bet you're exactly right. If our pal cousin Chuck Coletta is listening, he might well know being so up on pop culture history. So in that story, Bruce Comfort Stick telling him to be a good soldier. That's probably the origin of modern Batman's attitude with sidekicks. They're all soldiers <laughs> or not. I love how in the panel in which sad Bruce waves off sad Dick, his goodbye kid, goodbye, is in tiny lettering reflecting Bruce's little voice of sorrow. So many people say that Golden Age creators were unsophisticated, but they knew their art and craft. You immediately understood the situation. Agree 100%, Mark. And some of it is how, for that time period, everyone, quote-unquote, knows comics is just for little kids. So how many boundaries can you forge through when you're kind of, I don't want to say stuck in that medium, but for that mindset of that time, you're not going to do a 120-page graphic novel because that's not the medium at that time. And there are certainly are people who progressed the art form forward. But at that time, how could you? Indeed, indeed. But Bruce was so much more human in these early stories. Yeah. And now he really is just a front for Batman back then. He was human. He wasn't a character. I miss the reprints, but I love the new stuff. In the same story, Fatso puts Batman in a decompression chamber. Batman and Robin had a whole story centred on the Benz in 1954 in The Voyage of the First Batmarine from Batman 86, reprinted in the immortal volume Batman from the 30s to the 70s. And that was 10 years after this tale. I mentioned it because you guys did actually mention the Benz on this thing. In 1958, in Tech 262, the Benz came up again in the dynamic duo's encounter with the diabolical, memorable villain, Jackalhead. The Benz were obviously having a moment. You never hear about the Benz today. Once it was everywhere, it's like quicksand and white dog dirt. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I remember it being a story point in lots of things when I was a kid. TV shows and comics and all the rest. When you mentioned that story in the Batman to the 30s to the 70s, in my head went, oh, I remember that story. I didn't recall it at the time we were doing this episode, but that's an excellent point. Thank you. And then in the next reprint, The Second Boy Wonder, that has Dick in the splash panel, I think it is, holding a Robin mask with string attached. Now, I'd always thought that the mask was attached by something called Spirit gum, so there you go. It's better than a paper towel mask. Uh... <laughs> I'm going to no prize it that Dick thought, oh, since this is someone else, I'm going to add a string to the mask because he doesn't <laughs> know it's spirit gum. I don't think that's true. Or maybe the spirit gum didn't stick to the rubber mask that was on top of his face on top of the mat. That changes his chin. <laughs> <laughs> on page two of the same story, in the final frame, which I actually tweeted to the Batman family Twitter account, look again at the depiction of Alfred's head in cameo brooch style. It's horrifying. <laughs> I mean, it's a shadow with eyes and a funny nose. And it's just nightmarish. Now, it was Sean who made an offhand comment and no comments offhand when I'm listening. That Wonder Woman had a lot of bad Bronze Age stories. Actually, I think that was me. Very dare you. The entire Bronze Age was wonderful. Well, actually, I really should go back and read them because most of them have not been reprinted as far as I can tell. Once we got rid of Bob Kaniger, you had Martin Pascoe, yeah. Jerry Conway for a while, then Paul Levitt, then Jerry Conway again, then Dan Mishkin, then Dan Mishkin and Mindy Newell, then Mindy Newell. From 
I hundred the odd issues. I just loved it to bits. There's always something interesting going on. Uh, fair enough. I remember not loving the World War II stuff, and maybe that was what I was remembering. So properly chagrined, I will give it another look. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Someone, I won't guess the name because I will get it wrong, obviously. I'm a yeoman purser. I have to look that up. Yeoman purser. And I look it up and it's gopher from the love boat. <laughs> I'm honoured to be compared to Fred Grandy. Just do not call me a Republican. <laughs> I think that was because at the time you were on a cruise or something. I don't, I had, I'd never heard, well, I must have heard the phrase, but I just didn't know. I used to enjoy the love boat, but I blame the love boat for, for getting pretty much every American I ever meet on a cruise saying, I'm on the, <laughs> you're not on the boat, you're on a ship. Ships can't. <laughs> so what happened was in the script paul wrote something that wasn't yeoman purser so when i change what paul wrote it's either because i didn't understand what it was or it's some kind of dirty comment that i don't want to say <laughs> oh yeah me so, mr toilet no, that's, now that's, that's not true that is that is not true i just said that it's something that i probably didn't understand and kind of like the only other nautical term i understood was yeoman purser from, from the love the boat, love boat. <laughs> so that was the origin of that thank you anyway this end is my comments on last time all right fair enough let's move on to the next comment sean thanks martin note that martin was not here at baltimore with us anyway in response to martin lizanne oswalt pipes in nope Bugger, sod, and bloody are totally different comments in the U.S. Just don't use the British slang for an eraser here. And a few others that got changed across the pound. Bugger is fine in the U.S. Captain Entropy can't resist. Martin, don't call it a comeback. But if you take a scuba class, you'll hear enough about the bends to last you for years. Also, embolisms in the lungs and nitrogen narcosis. Diving is a wonderful hobby, but the classroom portion tends to emphasize all the ways you can die or suffer serious injury if you don't follow instructions. To an understandable but almost comical degree. Back cousin comics fashionista. Liz Ann continues on in two other comments. First, she posted another Kermit the Frog in Green video for all of us to enjoy. Then she goes on to say, impressive podcast, most impressive. I like Bab's outfit. Apparently for the first time, Barbara turned on the lights when she got dressed. <laughs> it was 70s cliche, but it works for her. She's probably a size four or something, so she could get away with the horizontal stripes, probably to accentuate her upper body. She was probably hoping Richard Grayson was going to see her in that outfit. Lori, on the other hand, looks like she got dressed in the dark yellow and purple why just why was she trying to wear the outfit the sandman wore in the 70s lizanne continues with some detailed comments on why babs should never date batman to which we wholeheartedly agree she then goes on to say killer moth and the cavalier were fine for the villains this sounds like the way cavalier has been written regarding the blockbuster story this was an enjoyable story that i did get confused when you started to cover the story because as i'm sure mr price will mention later the right on network had covered this previously in their batgirl podcast moving on to the next story it's sad to see that Dick Grayson's real relatives treated him that way. That's all I have to say about this issue. <laughs> with stuff like this, it is shocking how normal Dick Grayson turns out to be. Seems Alfred raised him well, along with Bruce's help. Can't wait to hear the next podcast. Thanks as always, Lizanne. Captain Entropy responded to Lizanne with, Lizanne, insightful comments. I think Barbara was thinking about the fact that she and Dick were at different stages of life. A lot happens between 18 and 25. It could be tough to have a partner who is that far behind. I have a friend, former boss, who married a man seven years her junior. To my knowledge, it had worked like a charm and they're still together, but I think they started dating later when the difference doesn't make so much difference, you know? 
On non-dating advice, Captain Entropy continues on. I have only three things to say after saying those other things. One, I really enjoy the episode. Two, Bat Cousin slash Bat Brother-in-law Todd is outstanding. I agree. And three, fashion choices aside, John Kalman made all the ladies in the lead story look fantastic. Barbara, Kath, and even Jealous Lori. And while we're on the topic, I was always pretty impressed with Jeanette Kahn. That includes Neil Adams' rendering, even if Jack Abel wouldn't sign off on it. I look forward to hearing you Bat Kin folks again soon. Thanks, Captain. Bat Cousin Brett Michael Young says, Hey, Bat Cousins, sorry I'm late to the reunion. I brought deviled eggs. As you can see, the cling wrap has stuck to the eggs and will likely take half the filling off when removed. It's quite a mess. As long as they're not red beet eggs, because I hate red beet eggs. This is Sean talking. Brett goes on to say, Great show as always. I really enjoyed the pure ridiculousness of the Batgirl Batwoman story. The Provincetown Airport security may be the talking to after allowing a dude carrying a sword to just hang out there looking for jewelry to stab. And apparently, the Provincetown Correctional Facility allows the Cavalier to be in his cell in full costume with a view of the local streets. (laughs) So I guess things are just a little different there. Forget it, Babs. It's Provincetown. By the way, that's a movie reference because I know I know I did not I get know that. My cousin Paul did I not did, get I that. I did not get that. It's it's from Chinatown. The classic Robin stories were fun. I always love when Batman punches a bad guy so hard that his hat pops straight up in the air. <laughs> always a crowd pleaser. Plus, Batman leaves the crooks alone for an hour so they can pack. Stick to punching hats <laughs> off, Batman. Maybe Robin is better off on his own. Okay, gotta go kick Aunt Ethel's butt in the potato sack race. She doesn't have the same stamina since that time she got stuck in a decom compression chamber people really need to stop leaving these things around (laughs) thanks brett that was great bucky 749 pipes in with a great set of stories but does anyone get laverne and shirley from what the bat gals are together also we brought devil eggs but cousin rob beat you to them i'm currently making a batch of dad's tuna salad Mustard or no mustard? Mustard. Mustard. And Captain Entropy says, Bucky, mustard, please. And if you really want something in the tuna salad, swap out the mayonnaise for horseradish sauce. Mm, Sounds good. This next name I am probably not going to say correctly, so please correct me. We end with Bat Cousin Brian Trifulo, who says, Cavalier was an excellent foil. That perfect pun. (laughs) Thanks to everyone for all the great comments, and thanks to Bat Brother-in-Law, Todd for guesting. Now we are moving on to our Facebook and Twitter mentions. As always, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're glad to have the conversation. On Facebook, we had mentions and likes by Darren Sutherland, Ruth Sutherland, Brian Linton, Michael Best, Mike Thomas, Herschel Mimas, Jay Campbell, James Williams, Paul Wildenberger, Terry O'Malley, and Clinton Robinson. And over on the Twitter side, we're going to start with our network friends. We had likes, mentions, and comments on Twitter from Mountain Comics, Once Upon a Geek, Digest Cast, For All Mankind SF, Superman Move Men, Treasury Comics, The Fire and Water Network itself, Firestorm Fan, and Irredeemable Shag. And we also had Twitter mentions and likes and follows and retweets by The Max of the Red Death, Jeff Owens, Michael Thomas, Tomb Priest, The Pod Crusher, Martin Gray, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, This Lightsaber Kills Fascists, Siskoid, Between the Pages Blog, Dr. Pop Culture, BGSU, Justin Steiner, Dave's Comic Heroes Blog, Jim Ball, Roger Preeb, The Terrible Hook, Liz Ann Oswald, Earth 2 Chris, Ronaldo Barnett, Rodney Trainum, Brian Safulo, and John Malarkey. 
We also had some Twitter fun because Keith G. Baker noticed that in Batman Family number 19, so spoiler alert for a few months from now, there is what we do believe is the first mention of Firestorm outside of his own comic. So Keith G. Baker posted that. Martin Gray talked about it. Firestorm fan talked about it. And of course, Firestorm fan brought it up to us that maybe we could talk about this on a future episode, which is what we're doing now. I replied, well, if the odd man who shows up in Detective Comics later is invited to the reunion, definitely Firestorm is invited, as is Keith G. Baker. So we look forward to seeing everybody at the ever-expanding reunion table. So before we sign off, as most of our listeners know, Running the Fire and Water Podcast Network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows were added. So if you're enjoying what you hear on this show or any of the other shows, please consider becoming a patron. We are not all Bruce Wayne, but any small amount you can give helps defray the cost. And we promise that none of your donations go towards Sean's treasury buying spree here at the Baltimore Comic Con. <laughs> to find out more, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts and thanks. That will do it for the feedback section and for episode 11. Thanks again to Batty Uncle Martin Gray for guesting this month. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will join us next month for solo stories for Batgirl, Robin, and Man Bat. Take care, everybody.